Hello, my name is Stephen Hill. Since 2014, I've been serving as the Chief Legal Advisor to the Secretary General of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. I lead a multinational team of international lawyers from across our alliance, based at our headquarters in Brussels, Belgium. We work with a network of around 200 legal advisors who are stationed in different parts of the NATO system. NATO is a political military alliance that assures the security of over 1 billion people in Europe and North America. Within NATO, our 29 allies work on a wide range of peace and security issues. NATO also cooperates with many partners in the broader Euro-Atlantic neighborhood, as well as across the globe. We also work together with international organizations, including the United Nations, as well as with the European Union. In addition, we cooperate with relevant regional organizations like the African Union and the Organization on Security and Cooperation in Europe. Currently, there are active NATO missions, operations, or activities in Afghanistan, the Western Balkans, the Mediterranean Sea, the Aegean Sea, and Iraq. NATO forces are often present as part of a broader effort by the international community such as a UN peace mandate, as is the case in Kosovo. We're also a member of the coalition to defeat Daesh. NATO nations are currently in the midst of the biggest reinforcement of their own individual and collective deterrence and defense in decades. Finally, as part of our work, we also conduct exercises and training, including on international humanitarian law. NATO's foundational document is the North Atlantic Treaty, which can be found in volume 34 of the UN Treaty Series, page 243. The North Atlantic Treaty was signed in Washington in 1949, and it's therefore sometimes called the Washington Treaty. It recently celebrated its 70th anniversary. In connection with this anniversary, there have been many discussions about NATO's past, present, and future role as a global security actor. One theme that frequently emerges in these discussions is the role that international law and the rule of law more broadly plays as an important part of this overall picture. It's therefore timely to include a lecture on NATO in the lecture series of the United Nations Audiovisual Library of International Law, which is of course part of the broader United Nations program of assistance in the teaching, study, dissemination, and wider appreciation of international law. I myself have always been an avid fan of this lecture series, especially the podcast, which I often listen to on my way to work in Brussels. So the purpose of my lecture here today is to introduce you to the legal framework in which NATO operates. After first giving some basic facts about the Alliance, I will then walk you through the North Atlantic Treaty and some of its key articles. Now don't worry, there are only 14 articles in this fairly spare treaty, and I will not attempt to discuss them all. To wrap up the lecture, I'll select three different contributions that I believe NATO can make to the broader project of international law. Before I proceed with telling you about NATO, I should emphasize that I'm speaking in my personal capacity here, and that my positions do not necessarily reflect official NATO views. So first, some basic facts or features that will help you understand the legal background for NATO. NATO is both an alliance of individual states and part of the landscape of international organizations. 
So first, let's look at the individual states. And in NATO, we often refer to the states as nations. So the alliance began in 1949 with 12 allies. As I said before, it currently includes 29 allied nations in Europe and North America. Article 10 of the North Atlantic Treaty enables other European states to join NATO following a unanimously approved invitation. For example, Montenegro is the most recent ally it joined in 2017. And a 30th ally, the Republic of North Macedonia, may well have joined the alliance before you listen to this lecture. The supreme political decision-making body in NATO is the North Atlantic Council, and that's set forth in Article 9 of the North Atlantic Treaty. All allies are represented at the, on the Council, which meets at the level of permanent representatives on a regular basis. There are also meetings of the Council at the level of Ministers of Foreign Affairs and Ministers of Defense. Two, there are two of each of these meetings each year. And then finally, the Council meets at the level of, head of heads of state and government every two years or so. The next such meeting will be in London in December of 2019. Heads of state and government often, but not always, adopt declarations and or other documents that are a very good source of the latest agreed NATO language on a whole range of policy issues. Now, allies make all decisions in NATO on the basis of consensus. That means that unlike other international organizations, there is no voting within NATO bodies. All decisions represent the collective will and the collective decision of all allies. And in all cases, the Secretary General chairs the Council. My colleagues and I on the NATO international staff are civilians who support the Secretary General in this role. The Council is advised by a military committee, which is composed of military representatives. It also has an extensive committee structure under the Council that covers a wide range of topics from political, operational, and technical viewpoints. There are quite a number of committees, and these committees are all uh, attended by representatives of allies and supported by international servants, civil servants on the international staff. In addition to the, the committee structure, NATO has a wide variety of agencies that cover specialized areas such as procurement and information technology. Now, apart from that structure, there's also a military structure that includes the two NATO Supreme Allied Commanders. One is based in Belgium and one is based in the United States, as well as the NATO military structure. And there's a, there's a, a military structure that has various headquarters that are located throughout the territory of NATO countries and where NATO has operations. And then finally, in addition to all that, there are specialized formats that enable interactions between NATO and other states. For example, the NATO-Ukraine Commission and the NATO-Georgia Commission are important ways to act at the political and at the practical cooperation level with those two states. Another example is the NATO-Russia Council, which remains a forum for dialogue with the Russian Federation. Now, uh, from the perspective of international institutional law, NATO is quite interesting. It has a well-developed international legal architecture that uh, I won't go into too much detail about here because it's, it's a very uh, interesting and complex case. To discuss but one element of this architecture, 
Uh, in line with the multilateral agreement, which is called the Agreement on the Status of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, National Representatives, and the International Staff, that agreement was done at Ottawa in 1951. We call it the Ottawa Agreement. The organization enjoys international legal personality. It is an international organization uh, that, among other things, enters into agreements with states. Many of these agreements are registered with the United Nations in accordance with the UN Charter, and you can find them on the UN, in the UN Treaty website. So that completes my brief uh, summary of the institutional structure of NATO, which comprises both the, the interstate work, but also our international institutional architecture. Now, let's have a look at some selected elements of the North Atlantic Treaty. My aim is to show you that NATO has a comprehensive set of tools available to the Alliance to promote security both within the Alliance and in the international system more generally. And those tools are, are found, uh, first of all, and most fundamentally, in the North Atlantic Treaty. So let's have a look at the preamble of the treaty. The preamble reaffirms Allies' commitments to the purposes and principles of the Charter of the United Nations. And it also reaffirms, and here I quote, their desire to live in peace with all people and all governments, end quote. The preamble also describes, here I quote, the principles of democracy, individual liberty, and the rule of law, end quote, on which the alliance is founded. So that reference to the rule of law in the preamble is one of the earliest references to the term rule of law in a multilateral instrument. And I think it's very important for international lawyers as we think about the legal foundation on which NATO sits. And that includes the United Nations Charter, but that also includes international law more broadly. So in the same spirit as the preamble, Article 1 contains an undertaking consistent with the Charter of the United Nations on the peaceful settlement of disputes and on the non-recourse to the threat or use of force in any manner consistent with the purposes of the United Nations. That again shows how anchored in the universal framework of international order uh, found in the UN Charter that NATO is. Moving on to Article 2. Article 2 refers to the need for allies to, quote, contribute toward the further development of peaceful and friendly international relations by strengthening their free institutions by bringing about a better understanding of the principles on which these institutions are founded, and by promoting conditions of stability and well-being." So this reflects a broad understanding of the building blocks of security, which include strong domestic institutions, civic education, as well as the socio-economic foundations of peace. This article also touches on trade and other economic policy issues, as it refers to the need for allies to, quote, seek to eliminate conflict in their international economic policies and encourage economic collaboration between any or all of them, end quote. So overall, Article 2 suggests that the drafters of the North Atlantic Treaty had a broad conception of security. And that conception included the socioeconomic basis for security, as well as the notion that lack of collaboration and coordination in this area may give rise to conflict and instability. This comprehensive approach to security is reflected throughout NATO's work. Now, let's move to Article 3. That's what I call the workhorse of the North Atlantic Treaty. And why do I say that? 
It's because it describes what NATO allies do on a day-to-day -day basis. And here, let me quote from Article 3. It says, in order to more fully, if, pardon me, in order more effectively to achieve the objectives of this treaty, the parties, separately and jointly, by means of continuous and effective self-help and mutual aid, will maintain and develop their individual and collective capacity to resist armed attack." End quote. So this system of what Article 3 refers to as continuous and effective self-help and mutual aid, that system has been at the foundation of the Alliance's work for the past 70 years. It really is key for the Allies' ability to maintain their resilience against the wide range of security threats in the current, and I would say in the future, international environment. So Article 3 really describes all the things that NATO does on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's work in a spirit of solidarity, in a spirit of mutual help and support to strengthen uh, one's resilience and capacity to defend against attack. Now, let's move into um, some of the more operative parts of the treaty. For example, uh, Article 4, it provides for a, a consultation mechanism in the Council. It reads as follows, the parties will consult together whenever, in the opinion of any of them, the territorial integrity, political independence, or security of any of the parties is threatened, closed quote. Now let me just explain this one for a second. This is very broad. So it doesn't, uh, it means that any uh, party can request consultations, and those consultations take place within the North Atlantic Council. Uh, if it feels that the security, political independence, territorial integrity of any of the parties is threatened. So it's, it's a potentially quite broad consultative mechanism. It hasn't been used too much in the history of the alliance, but it is a very important tool, and it can be a very important tool for conflict prevention as well, and I think that's relevant for the work of the broader international legal system. Now, having talked about Article 4, let's move on to Article 5, which is perhaps the best known of all of the articles of the North Atlantic Treaty. It's often uh, discussed in the media and in, in other fora. It reads in, in part uh, as follows, quote, the parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. And consequently, they agree that if such an armed attack occurs, each of them, in the exercise of the right of individual or collective self-defense, recognized by Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations, will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forthwith, individual, individually, and in concert with the other parties, such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force, to restore and maintain the security of the North Atlantic area, end quote. Now that's a mouthful and it can be unpacked. And I would encourage you to look at the text of Article 5 uh, and, and study it yourself because it has, it has a lot of elements. Um, I should also add that later on in the article, the article further provides that the armed attack as well as any action that is taken in response to it in line with Article 5, is to be immediately reported to the UN Security Council. Um, now, one point is that Article 6 of the treaty defines the geographical scope to which Article 5 applies. That is, where an armed attack would have to occur 
in order to fall within the scope of Article 5. Article 5 just refers to an armed attack within Europe or North America. Article 6 tries to, uh, tries to further define that geographical term. Article 6 is the only time the treaty has been amended, uh, and that was when Turkey joined NATO in the 1950s. Article 6 was uh, amended to reflect the uh, full extent of Turkey's territory. Now let's look at some history of Article 5. So the first, and so far luckily the only time, that the North Atlantic Council has decided to invoke Article 5 of the treaty was in response to the September 11 attacks in the United States. According to the Council's statement on September 12, 2001, Quote, the North Atlantic Council met again in response to the appalling attacks perpetrated yesterday against the United States. The Council agreed that if it is determined that this attack was directed from abroad against the United States, it shall be regarded as an action covered by Article 5 of the Washington Treaty. Now that's a historical decision within NATO. Uh, it's a decision uh, that is the only time Article 5 had, had ever been uh, invoked, but I think it's significant for a variety of reasons. Adopted by consensus, so consensus of all of the then NATO allies in the Council, the statement formed the basis for a number of actions, including uh, Operation Active Endeavor, which was NATO's long-standing counterterrorism operation in the Mediterranean Sea that lasted until just recently. Aside from its political and operational impact, the Council's decision remains of lasting legal significance as tangible evidence of state practice in support of the proposition that non-state actors can be the authors of an armed attack that could then trigger the use of force in the, in, in the exercise of the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense under international law. This has often been a source of debate in the international community, this question of whether attacks by non-state actors can trigger the right to self-defense, even in recent years when non-state actors have been at the forefront of many types of conflict. It goes without saying that Article 5 remains highly relevant to today's security environment. To give but one example, these days there is much discussion in the international law community about whether a cyber attack could be an armed attack, as that term is used in, interna in international law, including in Article 5. Now, NATO decisions clearly state that a cyber attack could rise to the level of an armed attack within the meaning of Article 5. This would be decided within NATO on a case-by-case -case basis. And we don't discuss the threshold at which uh, Article 5 might be triggered, for reasons that you can understand. As mentioned above, Article 5 has only been invoked once. Fortunately, most issues remain below the threshold of an armed attack, as that term is defined in international law. That's why it's important to consider broadly how the tools of international law help our allies and partners maintain their security in the face of a wide range of threats. And as I was talking about with reference to Article 3, this is the essence of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis at NATO. And I'm confident that the North Atlantic Treaty, even if it is 70 years old this year, provides a solid foundation for this work and enables us to work as allies forward. So that concludes my brief run through the relevant provisions of the North Atlantic Treaty. Uh, 
let me just end this lecture by suggesting a few areas, broader areas, where I think NATO's practice could be relevant to, the, to international law more generally. In other words, some areas where I think uh, what we do at NATO is relevant not, out, not just within the military and defense cooperation sphere, but also to bigger issues of international law. So the first of these issues is our practice in bridging the gaps in legal positions that frequently occur among our allies. Within NATO, we call this process legal interoperability. And that's a term, legal interoperability, that describes a lot of the efforts that we make within NATO um, when our states have different legal positions, different legal interpretations, different legal obligations that might affect military operations. Now, it's natural that states should have different legal obligations. They're parties to different kinds of treaties. If you think about the, the allies that are within NATO, there are many states that are parties to the European Convention on Human Rights, but there are two, the United States and Canada, that simply couldn't become parties to that convention. And so that's just one simple example uh, of different legal frameworks. And so what we've worked on, and again, in the spirit of Article 3, this process of constant consultation, of self-help, of work together, are many different techniques for, for uh, dealing with how we can work together despite these legal differences. And this applies in so many areas of military operations. Uh, I can think of targeting. I can think of detention as but two that are relevant. And I think that the solutions and ways forward that we've been able to come up with in NATO can be relevant for the international community writ large. Uh, and I invite you in this regard to consider studying NATO's practice. We are trying to publish more about our practice in this area so that you can understand a little bit more some of the solutions that we've developed to promote legal interoperability. I'm fully aware that these solutions might not work for, for all states or for all organizations, but I think that there is valuable practice in there that might be worth a look. Now, the second broader trend that I think could be relevant for international law more broadly is NATO's well-developed practice in the area of status agreements. Now, I mentioned the Ottawa Agreement, which governs the status of essentially the civilian personnel of NATO. That dates from the 1950s. But also dating from the 1950s is the so-called NATO Status of Forces Agreement, uh, as well as the Paris Protocol to this agreement, which regulates the status of military activities, uh, military um, elements. Now, in the 1990s, under the rubric of the Partnership for Peace, which was an initiative designed to uh, work beyond the then NATO allies with a wider uh, group of countries within the Euro-Atlantic area, that the NATO SOFA was in many cases extended uh, to Partnership of Peace countries under the aegis of what we call the Partnership for Peace Status of Forces Agreement, or the PFP SOFA. There's also a wide network that continues to be built through the work of colleagues of supplementary agreements, supplementary arrangements, implementing arrangements, memoranda of understanding, and many kind of detailed agreements with states both within NATO and outside that are highly relevant to state practice in terms of 
status to be provided to civilian and military forces, claims provisions, jurisdiction, uh, general rules governing the conduct and presence of, uh, of visiting forces, as well as civilian personnel. And so for that reason, I think these provisions have an influence or can have an influence beyond NATO. We know that there are status of forces agreements in many other areas. The United Nations, for example, has uh, similar type agreements to govern, govern its missions. And a lot of times the state practice that has been developed in the context of the NATO agreements can be quite useful to other actors. And once again, we're trying at NATO uh, in full realization of the fact that our practice might not be universally applicable. We're trying to put out more and more of our legal practice within the field of status agreements. As I said, work on status agreements continues. New status agreements are being developed, uh, especially with states outside of NATO where NATO has a presence. And those um, may be quite interesting, especially for those who study the law of, uh, of immunity, the law of visiting forces, and uh, related areas. Now, the third and final area that I would suggest to you as uh, somewhere where NATO might be able to make a contribution to international law, international law discussions. It really lies in the extensive amount of state practice on military and defense affairs that we have within NATO. As I was talking about in the context of Article 3, we've been working together within NATO in the spirit of self-help and mutual assistance, solidarity for the past 70 years. And we've developed an extensive uh, catalog of agreements on things that might be high profile, but might also be very uh, technical and specific. We have a large number of NATO standards. These are often found in what we call standardization agreements that really do constitute uh, examples of state practice when it comes to a wide range of issues. In past years, we've been trying to make a contribution to some of the current projects in the international law field in order to make NATO's practice known. For example, NATO has contributed to some projects of the International Law Commission in response to requests for inputs from international organizations. So for instance, uh, in the context of the uh, then project on the responsibility of international organizations, NATO provided some information about NATO's practices. NATO did the same in the context of the ongoing project at the International Law Commission regarding the protection of the environment uh, in relation to armed conflict. So my point is that NATO is a repository of state practice that I think, if properly studied or properly put out, can lead to richer products and ones that, I would dare say, may be better grounded in multinational military practice. Now, uh, in conclusion, I would like to thank you for listening uh, not only to my account of the structures of NATO and the way the North Atlantic Treaty works, but to some of my ideas about how NATO can be a relevant source of information and practice for international law more broadly. If you're interested in learning more about the legal aspects of NATO's work, I can suggest a few publications. NATO's Allied Command Transformation regularly publishes what's called the NATO Legal Gazette, and that's our in-house law journal 
that publishes articles written in a personal capacity, um, often by people who are involved in NATO. Recent editions of the NATO Legal Gazette have covered cultural property protection, for example, and the next forthcoming issue will cover the protection of the environment in armed conflict. That um, publication, the NATO Legal Gazette, is freely, freely available on NATO's website, uh, and then I would invite you to take a look. Finally, Emory University School of Law in the United States recently hosted a symposium in honor of the North Atlantic Treaty's 70th anniversary. So articles written in connection with that event will be published in a special volume of the Emory International Law Review. I expect that that special volume will be online by the time this lecture airs. So that special volume is an article-by-article article commentary of the North Atlantic Treaty that goes into a lot more detail and provides a lot more information than I was able to do today. So I'd like to thank you very much for listening to this lecture and for your interest in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I wish you all the best in your work with international law. Thank you very much.